If you would please take your Bibles and open to Titus chapter 3. Or you can take the prayer of confession because the promise of forgiveness is our text today. Titus chapter 3 verses 4 through 7 which we will come to later uh, in the sermon. In our series of meditations we have been considering the Trinity. It is, I think, the very nature of meditation that there is repetition. So I'll be reviewing a bit. Um, Bear with me. When we began this series, we saw that Jesus, before his ascension, said to his disciples, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you, Surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. And in this statement, we see what the Trinity is not, what people oftentimes uh, confuse or confuse the issue. The Trinity is not three gods. Uh, Jesus is not saying that there are three gods, but there is one God, one God, not three. You'll notice he doesn't say baptizing them in the names of, of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, as though they are three completely separate deities. Rather, he says, baptizing them in the name, singular, of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. He speaks of the one name because God is one. The Trinity is also not three aspects. It doesn't describe three aspects of God. This is a belief called modalism that believes that... um, you know, at one point God is a father, and at another point he's a son, and then now in our time he is the spirit. Um, as though he merely takes on various roles or modes, thus modalism, at different times. Jesus doesn't say in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit, but in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, emphasizing the fact that the one name of God belongs to each distinct person. Then we saw that the Trinity is not a contradiction. Um, It is not a contradiction to speak of God in this way, that he is one God, three persons. Some would argue uh, that this doesn't and can't make sense. And without question, it is difficult to get our minds around this, but it is not a contradiction. The way in which God is one is different from the way in which he is three. One writer put it this way, God is not one something and also three of the same somethings. If we were to say God is one person and God is three persons, that would be a contradiction. But the way in which he is one is not the same way in which he is three. He is one in name and nature, but he is three in persons. It's difficult to understand, but it is not contradictory. It is the center of our faith, stands behind all reality, which we have seen, we'll see again today. It is who God always has been and always will be. God is one. God is three persons. After the sermon last Sunday, several questions came up that I want to address here. Um, The first is, I said that the doctrine of the Trinity is the basic grammar of Christian faith and life, that the Trinity is the grammar of all reality. The question is asked, what do I mean by grammar? Well, if you look it up, grammar is the whole system and structure of language or of languages in general, usually made up of syntax. These are the rules, principles that process the structure of sentences. Uh, 
and morphology, the study of words. So what I intend when I say that the Trinity is a grammar, it is the system, it is the structure, it is the language of the Christian faith and life, but it is also the language of reality. Last Sunday we considered the basic principle of one and many, of unity and diversity. We have to ask ourselves, what is the basic fact of life? Is it unity? This is what we find in Eastern thought, all is one. Okay. Or is it plurality? What is the ultimate truth about reality? Is it one or is it many? If unity is the reality, then the basic nature of reality sort of wipes out any, any individualism, any differences. On the other hand, if the many, if plurality is uh, the, uh, the ultimate reality, then you cannot have any sort of unity. There isn't something that binds it all together. If one is ultimate, then the individuals are sacrificed. If the many are ultimate, then unity is sacrificed to the will of the many, and you end up with anarchy, much as what we see around us in our society today. All realities, all facts about where we live in the universe can only be understood in terms of the Trinity. I mentioned this last week. Using the language of the one and many question, we contend that in God the one and many are equally ultimate. It isn't, oh, are we one, are we many? In the Trinity we find both. God is one and three, one and many. Unity in God is no more fundamental than diversity, and diversity in God is no more fundamental than unity. God is one and three, the one and many. Unity and diversity. Another question that came up, even though I think it wasn't verbalized as such, was why spend so much time on this? After all, I think we would agree here at the Church on Melrose, we hold to, we believe in the Trinity, the reality of the Trinity. So why am I spending all this time on it? Let me suggest three reasons. First of all, it is the truth, and we are to meditate on that which is true. Paul wrote to the Philippians, uh, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about or meditate on such things. And the glory of the triune God, God as Father, Son, and Spirit, is certainly something we should meditate on. The second reason um, is that we are at a point in the history of the church at which the doctrine of the Trinity is being recovered. Um, Between 1910 and 1915, uh, a series of 90 essays was published uh, quarterly in 12 volumes, and then in 1917 it was published as a four-volume set, and it was called The Fundamentals. In the foreword, it stated that the publication was designed to be a new statement of the fundamentals of Christianity, which were reduced to five things. Biblical inspiration and the infallibility of scripture, the virgin birth of Jesus, belief in Christ's death as atonement for sin, bodily resurrection of Jesus, and the historical reality of the miracles of Jesus. Three years later, it was suggested that those Christians who were fighting for the fundamentals of the faith should be called fundamentalists. That's where the word came from. 
Strangely enough, now the word is used for all sorts of different kinds of people. You have fundamental Buddhists. You have fundamentalist Muslims. Fundamentalist Hindus. Uh, even pagans. There are fundamentalist pagans. Uh, among the Mormons, there are those that are considered fundamentalists. And among the Jews as well. So, anyway, to get back to the 90 essays. Not one of these essays was on the Trinity. Not one. You're talking about the fundamentals of the faith. Well, listen, if it is the grammar of the Christian life, it is, if it is the grammar of reality, how can you not talk about the Trinity? Trinity is mentioned once in Volume 1, not at all in Volume 2, three times in Volume 3, and once again in Volume 4. How can this be? And I would say that the doctrine of the Trinity is something that has been neglected by the church. And I think it goes a long way to explaining the chaos that we find in the church in the 20th century. Thank God, by his grace, the church has begun to recover this doctrine. But it leads to the third reason for this series. Now that the doctrine is being recovered there are different problems that come up. Um, Our beliefs, our practices presuppose that there is the triune God. But if we do not express this, if we do not celebrate it, if we take it for granted, then it just conveniently sort of is shunted aside. And if we're not careful, the doctrine of the Trinity becomes precisely that, a doctrine. It's simply a doctrine. We summarize the Bible into certain formulas, certain assertions, and this is one of the assertions that God is one and God is three persons. But we are in danger of denying in words and in actions the reality behind that and the result that God is Trinity. We are at risk of sinking into sub Trinitarian practices and beliefs. We begin to live as though there is only one person, one God and one person. And a side note, last Sunday I I gave a series of hypotheticals, what ifs, if you wish. Uh, What if we believe there's Father, Son, but no Spirit? What if we believe there's Father, no Son, but there's Spirit? What if there's no Father, no Son, but only Spirit? What if there's only Father, no Son, no Spirit? Um, And what I meant by all these what-ifs is that there are people who, in fact, believe this to be the case. And as a result, they have faulty grammar. They do not understand reality as they should because they do not believe in the triune God. The reality is God is three persons, one God, three persons, and he has revealed himself as such. So this brings us to the third point here today. So what? So what? Let's begin with the fact that what we need is not simply to accept a doctrine or teaching. That, I think, is the great danger as the doctrine is being recovered. It's simply a doctrine rather than something that we are putting into practice, we are celebrating in our living. We need to recognize that as Christians, 
we find ourselves already, even if we don't recognize it, we are already deeply involved in the life of the Trinity. And we need to think about that. We need to meditate on that and what are the implications. If we only have the doctrine of the Trinity, I think we will end up with something that is shallow, something that is weak and brittle. Because what it becomes is merely our ability to articulate it. And as we've agreed, the doctrine of the Trinity, the reality of the Trinity is beyond our comprehension. We say one God, three persons, but how is that possible? But if it only becomes a doctrinal statement, a verbal assertion, this is what we believe, then we will have really missed something really important. This is where many Christians today, even as the doctrine is being recovered, find themselves. I mentioned this in the first uh, uh, sermon in this series, that one author wrote uh, that there were a number of suspicions that were holding him back from embracing the Trinity. It doesn't make sense. It's not meant to make sense. It's too technical. It's embarrassing. And it's irrelevant. And as I pointed out, these are all wrong. But I think one takes this position if, in fact, the Trinity is merely doctrine. It's merely, this is what we believe. What goes wrong in so many discussions about the Trinity is that it is seen as a project. We need to find different verses in the Bible and sort of put them together and prove to people that God is Trinity. No. What we need to understand and appreciate is that we do before we understand. We act before we understand. And in doing, in time, we come to understand, little by little, better, the reality of the Trinity. Consider prayer, which is engaging the Trinity. We considered this progression, that persons talk to one another. God is a person, and so is each one of us. Therefore, God talks to us, and we talk to him. The conversing God... There wasn't silence before God created the world. The conversation going on between the three members of the Trinity. This is the beginning of the conversation. God speaks to us and we respond in prayer. And how do we do this? We pray to the Father, through the Son, by the Spirit. We do this before we understand this. Does it sound strange to you? Consider how many things that you learned to do before you came to know or to understand the significance of what you were doing. I would submit to you that if we only act on the things that we understand, we're not going to do very much. Because there are a lot of things we don't understand. If you will only pray when you have come to understand completely the nature of prayer... Uh, you may end up never praying in your lifetime. In writing this, I consider that oftentimes when children pray, their prayers are much more profound than those of adults. Because children aren't trying to think, oh, am I doing this right? Am I getting this exactly right? They're simply talking to God their Father. One might complain that children don't pray correctly. Yes, but they are praying. Who can claim to pray in exactly the right way? Paul, who knew a thing or two about prayer, 
wrote to the Romans in Romans 8, in the same way the Spirit helps us in our weakness, we do not know what we ought to pray for. Really? Paul, we, we don't know what to, we don't know how, what, uh, what we ought to pray for. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints in accordance with God's will. We're never going to get it exactly right. And sometimes words cannot express what is on our hearts. But the Spirit is there. He is there. We learn by doing. In some ways, I think this makes Bible college or seminaries very dangerous places because it's a place where you learn things, but you don't necessarily do things. Um, I'm always reminded when I think of this of a class I took over at LACC, a course in botany. It was taught by our late neighbor, Barbara Jo Hoshizaki. And within the first two weeks of the semester, she had us all out in the greenhouse. We were dividing plants to propagate them and potting them. We were given instructions and I followed the instructions, but I didn't know why I was doing what I was doing, except that Professor Hoshizaki said, this is what you're supposed to do, and so we did it. But from that point on in the semester, she taught us and explained to us the basics of botany. So I came to learn why it is we did what we did back at the beginning of the semester. And by the end of the semester, the results of our work of dividing and potting, propagating plants, was evident because these things were now growing. If we had waited to do once we knew what we were doing, it would have been too late. We would have never seen the results of our work. But she had us doing things before we understood what we were doing and then explained it to us. And I would argue the same thing is true of the nature of the Trinity. If we are going to wait until we understand the Trinity, the Trinity, um, we're not ever going to do anything as God's people. Many Christians, I would say too many Christians, struggle with the doctrine of the Trinity, when in fact what they should be doing is living their lives as God's children. That in living their lives and in doing, they will come by the grace of God, bit by bit, to understand better the nature of the Trinity. They fail to recognize that the Trinity, their understanding of the Trinity, or the doing, begins with their salvation. And that's what we find in our text today. How are Christians different? Why are Christians different? Paul spells it out in one sentence. In Greek, uh, verses 4 through 7 is one sentence. Uh, Follow along, if you would, as I read it. Titus 3, verses 4 to 7. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. In these verses, Paul offers the divine response to the human condition. I think he's doing at least two things here in this passage. First of all, he is setting before the believers in Crete the gospel in condensed form. 
This is the good news. This is what the good news consists of. That in fact, the kindness and love of God our Savior has appeared to us. And it goes on to the end of verse number 7. But secondly, also to emphasize that it's not based on good works. It's totally dependent upon the mercy and the grace of God. There's a function that isn't evident here. Paul is not saying, hey guys, I'm, I'm going to give you a proof text now about the Trinity. I'm going to talk about the Father, Son, and Spirit in these verses. This one sentence. I'm going to put it all together. So listen, because this is going to be the Trinity. No, he simply assumes that this is the case as he speaks the good news. So verse 4, when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, the way the sentence begins implies more than it states. The implication is, back then we were unbelievers. When we were unbelievers, the kindness of God appeared to us. It appeared in the Lord Jesus Christ, but it also appeared in our lives when God saves us. We have the incarnation, God's love and kindness appearing, but when God saves us, it appears as well. And what does it do? Verse number five, he saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth by the Holy Spirit. He saved us. This is the main subject and verb of this long sentence, verses 4 through 7. The rest of the sentence tells us the basis of this salvation is his mercy. The what of this salvation is rebirth. We are born again and we are renewed. And the means is by the Holy Spirit. What, what can this mean? Let's, let's see what Paul says. He begins with, it's not because of righteous things we had done. It's interesting if you read the book of Titus, and we studied it some time ago, that the subject um, of good works and of living rightly is predominant. Titus has been left in Crete by Paul, and these are new believers, and Titus needs to instruct them how they are to live godly lives. Having said that, don't think that your good works, living a godly life, is why God saved you. No, it's not because of anything that we have done. Okay? Paul doesn't say here, we are not good people, we have not done righteous things. But rather, he's saying it is because of God's mercy. It is because of God's mercy. And as he says, we are justified by grace. This is the only way. What does it mean to be saved? Well, Paul uses two metaphors here. First of all, the washing of rebirth and renewal. And one might say, well, that doesn't help. It doesn't clear it up at all. But what Paul is doing is condensing it a bit. And what he's talking about is a radical change in a person's inner being. Here it's described as rebirth. You're a new person. You have been reborn. Then secondly, there is a renewed relationship with God. What does the washing refer to? I think immediately we might think of baptism, but we know that baptism does not save. Um, 
Rather, it is, I think, a picture of what has happened or has been done to us. We have been cleansed. We have been reborn. We have been renewed. And it all points to the fact that we are united with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. So there's the second member of the Trinity. And this is done by the Spirit. When God created Adam, he breathed into him the breath of life, and man became a living spirit. When God saves us, God breathes into us his Holy Spirit. We are reborn. Our relationship that Adam and Eve screwed up millennia ago has now been repaired. We have been renewed in our relationship to God by the Spirit. And how does the Spirit come to be with us? Verse 6, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior. The Spirit of God has not been given to us with an eyedropper, if you wish, or a teaspoon. It's been given to us, it's been poured out generously by the Lord Jesus Christ. And we've been given new life by the Spirit given by Jesus Christ. And then finally, verse number 7, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs having hope of the eternal life, hope of eternal life. The gift Jesus has given us is a renewed relationship with God. He's made us right in God's eyes. And the result is we are now heirs. We are now the children of God. We have been adopted. We are now his children. What about this eternal life business? It's not talking about endless life. I think oftentimes people think of it like like super, super long life. Rather, it is sharing the life of the triune God who is eternal. As I said, we need to do before we come to understand. And even when we first come to faith in Christ, how much do we understand? I think we know that we are sinners, um, that we are in need of help, that Jesus died for us, and that if we put our faith in him, he will save us. Those are the basics. And we put our faith in Christ. You don't have to go to seminary to learn about soteriology, Christology, pneumatology, all these different ologies You put your faith in Jesus. We do. And as we grow as Christians, we come to learn and we come to understand. It's like a child going to school. Addie will start first grade. Gracie just started kindergarten. They will learn basic things that will help them as they continue to grow. They grow in knowledge. We don't expect them to understand everything right away. Of course not. And yet somehow when it comes to the Trinity... People are like, you know, Damon, I just, I just can't understand it. Well, join the club, okay? Don't focus on understanding, focus on doing. In our praying, in our worship, in all that we do, we are to celebrate the reality of the triune God. We may struggle with it, but it defines our reality. One reality, many, many aspects to it. Our bodies are proof of the Trinity. We saw this last week in 1 Corinthians 12. One body but many parts. And the church is to be the proof to the world of the Trinity. 
that though we are different and we come from different backgrounds, very, very different, we are one in Christ. We are the body of Christ. It is in doing, I'm convinced, that by God's grace we come little by little to understand the reality of the triune God. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we confess our limitations, our lack of understanding, and yet somehow we use that as an excuse for not doing what we ought to do. The reality is there's so many things in our lives we don't understand, but we still act. May we, by your grace, be humbled and see that it is in doing and obedience that we will come to learn more and more of who you are. That even as we are praying now to you, our Father, through the Son, by the Spirit, we're acting in a Trinitarian way. When we think of the day that you saved us, You, our Father, sent your Son who gave his life. Now he has given us your Spirit. It's there. It is in doing that we should learn these things. Help us to see that we are to be your children. We are to be obedient children and not theologians or scholars. There is a place for those, but your calling is for us to be children, to live in light of who you are and living in that light, your light might be shown to those around us. Thank you for your love, your amazing grace. May your spirit work in our hearts. May we meditate on these things. And as James told us, not be hearers only, but doers of the word. I thank you for bringing us together today. Again, we remember those who are having birthdays for Becca. We pray for her and Ben as they come back on Tuesday. For Oscar tomorrow, Titus on Wednesday, Lonnie on Thursday. Thank you for your great faithfulness in their lives. Pray for Gracie in kindergarten and Addie as she starts first grade. Give Stacy wisdom as she homeschools her. For each one of us, as we walk through the world, may we have a sense of your presence by your Spirit. And now as we leave this place, may your Spirit and your grace go with us. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.